I've come to seek and save the lost. Nowhere in scripture do we see a worldview that says he seeks and saves the worthy. We don't see that anywhere in scripture. Well, friends, if you're new with us, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church, and welcome, welcome to the last Sunday of 2023. I was actually in the huddle earlier, and I had to like pause and think about what year it was. It's such a, such a weird, I can't even believe that we're going into 2024. That's a wild moment for me, and so my brain wouldn't even let me believe it. But the end of 2023, and we're going to be finishing up our series today, He Has Been Called. Through the month of December, we've been just discovering different names of Jesus that were given to him throughout the Christmas story. And today, we want to just look into the name itself, Jesus. What is, why was Jesus called Jesus? Why was that his given name? The title of the sermon today is, One Who saves. One who saves. Jesus is the Christ. You may have heard many times Jesus Christ, right? When we reference Jesus, we say often Jesus Christ. It's actually a bit of a disservice because for some of us, we think that Christ is his last name, right? That, that's not the case. Christ is Christos. Christ is a title given to Jesus. So it would be better to say Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, the promised one. So with that out of the way, let's just dig into some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament. I want to really quickly put a picture up on the screen. Uh, maybe this is a better screen to look at. I'm sorry, it's a little bit hard to see. But do you see all of these lines and this graph at the bottom? These are all through the books of the Bible. And every single one of these lines, it looks like a big colorful web arcing between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Each and every line there is a cross-reference from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I want you to consider that. Consider all of those lines. Like, you can't see it very clearly here. If you had a nice screen, you'd be able to see each individual line. There's so many. There's thousands. This is a book that was written over thousands of years. We've said this before. By almost 40 different authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it has so much consistency between Old and New Testament. Books and letters that were written in the first century, all the way back to books that were written around 1500 BC or so. Unbelievable consistency across this entire library of books we call the Bible. This is going to come into play today as we consider the name Jesus. Because when we consider the Word of God, we have to consider it as a narrative. This is what, in, in children's church over here, they know as the big God story. 
from Genesis to Revelation is the big God story. Not our story. We're not the main character, but the big God story and how he came to save and how he set up relationship with mankind and his creation. And so as we look at scripture, let's remember this picture of these thousands of connections between Old and New Testament and how that might influence the way we see living today. So before we go on, let's look at some of the origins of this name, Jesus. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago when we discovered Emmanuel, God with us, but we're going to kind of jump to it again. This is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 25. But after he had considered this, Joseph, the, the adopted father of Jesus, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, just keep in mind, Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, and he's having a hard time with that because he knows he's not the daddy, right? And so this angel comes, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Although this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. From the father to Christ's earthly father, God gives direction, name him Jesus. So where does this name come from? Is this unique? Is this a unique name? Is this one of one? No, it's not. It's not one of one. In fact, it was a pretty popular name, Jesus. So why does this angel instruct Joseph to give his son the name Jesus? Well, we translate this from the Greek, and the Greek is Asus. Asus in the Greek, which is transliterated from the Hebrew Yazoo. Yazoo is a late form of the Hebrew Yehoshua. And all of these variations mean the same thing. Does anybody know what they mean? God saves. Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. Literally means God saves or Yahweh saves. So now that we have kind of a definition, we understand what it literally means, we need to do a little bit of digging. Because this name is not unique, we see this name show up in different places in the Old Testament. If we go back to the original Hebrew of this name, Yehoshua, what does it sound like in our English language? Joshua. Did you know the name Joshua in the Hebrew and the word Jesus in the Greek are the same word? 
One is transliterated to the Greek. Jesus and Joshua are synonymous. They're the same name. Now remember that graph we just showed you. We have to consider this is the big God story. So when we begin to realize how amazing the scriptures really are, we see the consistency. We see that they are indeed all authored by one individual. Though many hands wrote it, one individual inspired it. Who was that? The Spirit of God. Across time and space, inspired the Word of God, and so we have such consistency. And so because we have such consistency, we can look at this narrative and we can consider some of the literary devices that are used in literature. And one of these literary devices is foreshadowing. Who's ever heard of foreshadowing before? Right? It's something early on in the story that gives us a clue of what's to come. And we see this throughout all of Scripture. Many of these lines here are foreshadowing moments that lead us to something from the past to the future. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. And many of them converge in the person of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the main character of the story. He's the climax. He is the moment. Emmanuel, God with us. Lamb of God slain. The resurrection and the life. These are the highlights of the big God story. The redemption of mankind. And so when we look to the Old Testament, we can see these moments of foreshadowing. So today, I want to go back. And I want to consider Joshua's life. And how we see these moments of foreshadowing for the one who would be called Jesus, meaning God saves. So let's jump back. The first time that we are actually introduced to Joshua, Joshua was like the right-hand man to Moses. Moses was the leader of Israel. Moses had a horrible job. He had to deal with some just horrible complaining people all the time. I wouldn't have want that job. It's estimated about 2.8 million people wandering around in the wilderness. Just think about the logistics of all of that, figuring that all out. Their tent of meeting was a tabernacle tent that they had to pack up every time they moved and followed the cloud, the pillar by day, and the cloud by day and the pillar by night, the pillar of fire. And here we are introduced to this young man in Exodus 33. I know I've said it before, but Exodus 33 is my all-time favorite chapter in the entire Old Testament. So if you ever want to just like give that a read, I love it. It's my all-time favorite chapter in the Old Testament. But we see in 33.11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but 
his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So we see Joshua staying pretty darn close to his rabbi of sorts. The dust of Moses' sandals was certainly on Joshua's feet. And Joshua saw an intimacy that Moses had with Yahweh, and he was hungry for the same. And so even after Moses leaves the tent, Joshua is there at the altar. Or he's at least there in the outer courts, hungry for the presence of God. I, I, I just, I can't help but think often of, of young people. Some of you guys, you've experienced this. Maybe it was at camp. Maybe it was at some kind of a, a kind of getaway meeting or a retreat. Or maybe it was at an altar in a church like this. And I can't help but think of my youth in moments where I was just so zealous to know God. And everybody would kind of like finish up the service and they would all kind of leave, right? Go get coffee, go hang out, go to Swiss Chalet, whatever church people do. But there would be just a few young, hungry people that would just linger at the altar and they didn't want to go. In fact, sometimes we had to get kicked out because all we wanted to do was have a, an experience of knowing God. We just talked about a veil today. You know how you pierce the veil? You wait. With hunger in your belly, you wait. And you pursue. And you pray. And you repent. And you wait. And Joshua waited in the tent of meeting. He was hungry to know God. And this is our first clue that he's going to be a great leader. This is our first clue that something is up with this young guy, Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, that Nun, N-U-N, by the way, not, he wasn't immaculately conceived or anything. Now, maybe this is a bit of a leap. I'll give you this. I'll give you this one. Bit of a leap. We're talking about foreshadowing. But I can't help but think of this moment. And then think of a moment in the first century when a young man named Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his parents. You remember this? And then on the way home, Joseph and Mary start looking around the traveling group they're with and go, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, where's Jesus? Where did Jesus go? And so they turn around and leave their party and they head back to Jerusalem because Jesus is nowhere to be found. Where do they find Jesus? Where do they find him? At the temple. Growing and learning and hungry for the things of God. Now you might ask, what does all of this foreshadowing have to do with me? Like, why does this matter? Like, this is neat and everything. This is kind of cool. 
that we can look back at Joshua's life and see these moments of foreshadowing of Jesus' life. That's great. That's cool. Nice literary device. But why does it matter for me? Here's why it matters. Because when we look back at just a man, Joshua, just a man, just a human being, not perfect, just a human being, called by God and anointed by the Spirit, we see that he was able to live his life in such a way that he foreshadowed Jesus himself. Don't kid yourself. The same spirit that was in Joshua that allowed him to live that kind of life, that same spirit is in you. To point back from this Acts 22 moment of the church in the 21st century, to point back to the person of Jesus himself. And to point forward to the promise to come, a returning king. Make no mistake, Joshua was just a man. Let's not treat him like he was anything other than just a man. But empowered by the Spirit, he was able to live in such a way he pointed us to Jesus. So as we go through these moments of foreshadowing, this is not just some fun little exercise. This means something for you. It means something for you. Because if you have the Spirit of God in you, you have been empowered and called to point people to Jesus. And this is such an encouraging thought. Because I too am just a man. You too are just a man. You too are just a woman. Just a human being, broken and frail like the rest of us. But called by God, empowered by the Spirit, we get to point people to Jesus. So let's continue in that paradigm, shall we? In that worldview. But we see that this is kind of the prerequisite. The prerequisite to being used mightily by God is this moment that we find Joshua in, hungry for his presence, in the tent of meeting, not willing to leave, but lingering and waiting and pursuing. This is the prerequisite to greatness, friends, in the kingdom of God. The quiet, the intimate. And we see this also, not just in the life of Joshua, but we also see it in the life of Jesus. Hungry to be in the temple, hungry to be about his father's business. So let's jump a little bit further ahead in Joshua's life. Moses has since passed, and Joshua has been called to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. But before they do, Joshua, like his mentor before him, sends spies into the land. You know this story? And these spies end up going into 
Jericho, one of the capitals of Canaan. And Jericho is a great city. And Jericho has fortified walls all the way around it. It's an unbelievable marvel. And these spies enter the city. But they aren't very good spies because they got found out right away. In fact, the ruler of Jericho finds out right away that they have spies in the city. And so these spies, they go into a prostitute's house. And this prostitute, what's her name? Rahab. This prostitute hides them under lentil branches on the roof of her house and deceives the armed guards that come to seek out these spies and says, yes, they were here, but they left a while ago. If you hurry, you might catch them on the road outside of the city. And so these armed guards, they take her at her word, and they leave and they pursue these spies. Meanwhile, the spies are hidden. And so as the spies come out of hiding, they make an oath to Rahab that because she stepped up and saved them, she and all her household will be saved. I love this moment. It's such a, this is such a wild moment. This is such a typical Bible moment. So raw, so visceral, so unapologetically not trying to hide anything. This is what the scriptures are like all throughout. Now, why does this foreshadow Jesus to us? Here's why. These men and women of the Old Testament were just men and women. And they were empowered by the Spirit to carry out key missional moments for the purposes of God. And when we look at this moment, we see Joshua, he ends up honoring this oath that the spies make. He has enough wisdom to know that he has to honor this oath. And so after she hides them from Jericho, we see this is the outcome in Joshua 6, 16 to 17. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. What does this have to do with Jesus? How does this foreshadow something of Christ to us? Well, both Joshua and Jesus honored and saved sinners. Both Joshua and Jesus honored and saved sinners. There's a kind of irony in the reality that one of the least worthy of Jericho was not just saved, but would become honored as one who is a part of Jesus himself lineage and genealogy. There's just something wild about this moment. Not only does she represent a foreshadowing of things to come, but she becomes a part of, through blood, the things to come. It's unbelievable. 
but they both honor and save sinners. Christ himself says, I have come to seek and save the lost. I've come to seek and save the lost. He also says, those who are healthy, those who have it all together, those that are whole, they don't need a physician. Who needs a physician? The sick, the weak, the desperate. I've come to seek and save the lost. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a worldview that says, he seeks and saves the worthy. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. We just talked about carrying burdens. We just talked about carrying a yoke that is easy and light. Why is the yoke of Christ easy and light? Because he took our sin and brokenness upon himself. I can't help think like a cartoon. You ever seen the oxen in these yoke? These big muscle-bound, just powerful beasts. They have this yoke, and it goes over them, and then it goes over the one next to them. And I can't help but picture, it's like a cartoon in my head. Just picture yourself beside one of these powerful beasts, and then think of yourself strapped into that yoke. And I feel like your feet would just be dangling, and it would be doing all the work. That's the yoke we carry. When we yoke ourselves to Christ, that's the yoke we carry. He's doing it all. He's giving us the faith to believe. He's forgiving our sin. He's calling us. He's giving us purpose. He's doing it all. And we just have to come alongside and be a part of what he's doing. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Just hang on for dear life and take the ride. If you're here today and you're exploring faith, maybe you made a resolution to, you know, make faith a greater part of your life. Maybe you're here and you kind of feel unworthy. Maybe you came to church today and you just feel like, oh, I just don't belong. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not enough. My life's a mess. Whatever it may be. I don't know your, I don't know your circumstance. But if you're anything like me at times, you feel desperately unworthy. I want to let you know that you're in good company. You're in good company. You look around this room, there are some that are close to perfect. I won't ask you to put up your hand to self-identify. But the rest of us, we're a mess. And we're just trying to be faithful. This word of following our master. trying to stay in lockstep with him as we battle this flesh that just wants to get distracted, wants to pursue other things. This flesh that gets depressed, gets anxious. 
you're in good company. Because the only thing we have to boast about is the forgiveness of Jesus in our lives. That's all we've got. You're looking at a room of the unworthy, made worthy, only because he is worthy. So let's take a detour for a moment. I, I love this part of the narrative surrounding Joshua's kind of time leading Israel. This is kind of a really... When I say it's an unbelievable story, I mean that quite literally. This is a story of great debate. And it, it's quite an unbelievable story. So let's jump into Joshua chapter 10, 12 to 15. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, they're in the middle of a big battle right now against a conglomerate of Amorite tribes that have come together to defeat Gibeon, and Israel has come to their aid. Gibeon is one of the, uh, is one of the nations that kind of tricked Israel into uh, a truce and an alliance. And so Israel is going to honor that. Joshua is going to honor that. And so during this battle, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon. And you, moon, over the valley of Ahalon. And so the sun stood still, and the moon stopped. Okay, this is a wild story, I'm telling you. It's literally unbelievable. Till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. I love, I love this moment. This is a wild story. This is a wild moment. When Joshua, a man, declares to the sun and the moon to stand still in the sky... So that day wouldn't pass until they had avenged Gibeon. Now, can you think of how this might foreshadow the life and the ministry of Jesus? Joshua, a man, spoke to the things of natural law. Jesus in a boat. What happened? You had some veteran fishermen who had seen all kinds of seas in that boat. And they were scared to death. Why? Because there was a great storm. This is a, the kind of storm that was scaring the veteran fishermen. A storm unlike anything they had ever encountered before. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. I'm not even lying. It says he's got a little pillow and he's sleeping on the boat during this great storm. And everyone's freaking out. And finally, finally, someone wakes up Jesus in the middle of the storm. 
And after he chastises them for a moment, O ye of little faith, what does he do? He speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. The supernatural intersecting the natural. Giving us these clues of who Jesus is. Who Joshua's life was foreshadowing. The wind and the waves obeyed him. God saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus, Joshua, God saves. So let's back up for a moment to the crossing of the Jordan River. Joshua sends the priests ahead with the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, this Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence with Israel. This is place of the Holy of Holies. When the tabernacle was, was built, it would be in the inner courts. This is where Moses would have met with God face to face. This is where the pillar of cloud would come to stand as they made camp over this altar. And so this Ark of the Covenant, the priests go ahead of everyone and they step to the edge of the Jordan. And what happens? The Jordan begins to pile up the word says, near a city named Adam. It piles up and the priests walk to the middle of the river on dry ground. And then the armor, army proceeds to cross and everyone proceeds to cross into the promised land on dry ground. Does it remind you of anything? Maybe the Red Sea moment? This is a moment where God puts his mark on Joshua in front of everybody. Basically, God's saying, hey, hey, this is your leader now. You follow this man. And they cross into the promised land on dry ground. And I think there are three kind of foreshadowing moments that we need to explore here. Number one, both Joshua and Jesus lead us to the promised land. Both Joshua and Jesus lead us to the promised land. The promised land of Israel was and is, it's a type and shadow of the eternal promise in the big God story. What is yet to come? What is our promised land? What are we running towards? A new heaven and a new earth in the presence of God. You might know it as heaven. This is our promised land. This is what we're pursuing. And the next two things, they kind of play off of each other. Let's call it two and three together. They both institute mechanisms for remembering by choosing 12. This is so interesting. This gets me excited. When they had crossed the Jordan, God said to Joshua, select 12, one each from each tribe, to go back into the river to pick up some stones and to bring them into the promised land, these 12 stones. And these stones he piles up in Joshua 4.20. 
tells us. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might also fear the Lord your God. Now I want you to consider something for a moment. Did the 12 men go into the river and pick up the only 12 stones that were there? Like, were there only 12 stones in the riverbed? Most likely not, right? Most likely, there's a little more going on there. So why those 12 stones? What made them so special? I want you to consider the concept of holiness. What is holiness? Set apart. These were just stones until they weren't just stones. They were just stones until these men picked them up for a purpose. A purpose of memorial to remind the children of Israel what God had done. These stones were set apart. These stones were made holy and sacred by this action and this moment. I want you to think of Jesus' life. I want you to think about the New Testament concept and paradigm and worldview. Jesus is about to start his ministry. And he goes up onto the mountain and he prays all night seeking the wisdom of the Spirit, speaking the wisdom of his Father. And then he comes down from that mountain, and what does he do? He selects 12 men. What made these men special? Nothing. They were just men. They're just men. They're men among many. What made them special? They were chosen and set apart. And then we see this concept develop through the New Testament church and through the writings of the apostles. This idea of stones taking on a new meaning. First Peter. 2.5, Peter writes of this. Peter, the, the kind of like, <laughs> the unstable disciple, pre-Holy Spirit, if you will. You know what I'm saying? 
He had a lot of great moments. But man, when he was full of the Spirit, boldness came on him, and he stepped up. Set apart, filled with the Spirit, set on a mission. He writes these words. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you are living stones, then Jesus has chosen you for a purpose, and that purpose is the same. If we could go and find those 12 rocks piled up on the shores of the Jordan, they still save the, they serve the same purpose. What's that purpose? Witness to the faithfulness and the power and the goodness of God. What is our purpose as living stones being built up together? To be witnesses of the faithfulness and the goodness, the salvation, the grace, the mercy, the joy, the hope, the peace. To reveal to the world that something of the promised land has been implanted in us. That we have been given an inheritance that takes us so far beyond this lifetime. And when our children ask, and when our grandchildren ask, and when our community asks, when our friends ask, when our family asks, we can tell them God changed everything. He made a way for me where there was no way. He led me into something so much greater. I have had a taste of the promised land, that thing that we all long for, that thing that we're all pursuing. God saves. Jesus, God saves. Matthew 1, 21 says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Yahweh, God saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, when I preached this sermon a few weeks ago on Emmanuel, I had someone come up to me after the service, and they asked a very insightful question. They asked, what does one have to do with the other? Like Matthew seems to, Matthew tells us the narrative. He tells us the story. This is what the angel said to Joseph. You shall name him Jesus, which means we know now God saves. And then Matthew brings us into this moment of commentary. Where he says, this all happened because. 
The word of the prophets say they will call him Emmanuel. But Emmanuel doesn't mean God saves. Emmanuel means God with us. So why does Matthew seem to treat these terms in a synonymous kind of way? What's going on here? I thought, man, that's a great question. Yeah, why does he treat this synonymously? Why does he just make this kind of assumption and this leap between these two things? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God saves. And here's the best that I can come up with. We've been singing over this season a song called A Thousand Names. Where we explore different names that attribute character, attribute understanding. Some of them are titles. Some of them are descriptions. And some of them, like Jesus, are literal names. It's been kind of a theme song over the last season of the church here at Evangel. And what do all these names have in common? They all describe the character, attributes, and names of God. Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Commander of Angel Armies, Lamb of God, Messiah, Righteous Judge, Lion of Judah, the Christ, Emmanuel. They all refer to one person. looked at that graphic of all those lines and all those connections between the Old and New Testament, they all have one thing in common. They all speak to the consistency of the story that leads us to Jesus as the climax of that story. To the climax of the history of humanity, if you will. The Redeemer, the Messiah, the Christ, come to earth to save. God saves. Joshua pointing us forward to Jesus. God saves. And just like Joshua sent 12 out into the riverbed, Jesus sent 12 out into the world to build a memorial of living stones pointing generations to Jesus. God saves. He sends us to do the same, to be those living stones that declare Jesus, God saves. The dry ground and the path that he has made to salvation. When we look back to the Old Testament, we see ourselves, we see the potential for working out that purpose of pointing people to Jesus, God saves, filled with the Spirit. And we point forward as well to that great salvation when he returns, when he establishes his kingdom in perfection, new heaven and new earth, the promised land we've been hungering for, the promised land we've been desperate for. When he leads us once and for all into that promised land we call heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, Make no mistake, we too are in the wilderness 
Maybe in 2023, some of you have felt the profound pain of being in the wilderness. But that pain reminds us that there's something more. That there's a promised land that we're longing for. And that we're being led towards. In lockstep with our Savior, our Rabbi, our Jesus. He's building his church with living stones. Joshua's life foreshadowed the greatest event in human history. God with us, coming to save us. Emmanuel, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we're listening. Lord, we hear you through the preaching of your word. We hear you through the prophetic gift, the exhortation, the challenge. Lord, would you forgive my trespasses? I forgive those who trespass. Lord, not our will be done, but yours. Jesus, thank you for stepping back into the riverbed and selecting us to be set apart be chosen, to be made new with purpose of witness. In 2024, Lord, empower us to point people to Jesus. That you might select many, many more. In Jesus' name.